till the fanfare says it all, folks, this is our 100th episode of The Film File, the film show for film geeks by Film Geeks. Hello and welcome to this. Well, who'd have thought we'd ever make it this far? Our 100th episode. For 100 episodes, I've been Lee Ford. I've been Andy Meakin for about 106 of them. Yes, you've done, of course, <laughs> all the little um, additional pieces and your commitment to the film file has been tremendous. Happy 100th birthday, buddy. And you, man. I mean, wow. It's really flown. It doesn't seem like yesterday since like we got put into lockdown one and we started doing these chats week on week. And like up at that point, I think we were already on like episode 23 or something when we hit yeah. lockdown. And now it's just been a weekly show that all you listeners out there are appreciating, or maybe you're not appreciating. Feel free to let us know. Um, but it's it seems to have flown by. What else? Because I've been, like I said, um, we're taking a break after this week for a few weeks. And it's I've been Christmas digging after all. I've been digging through the archives to find some bits and pieces to put together for little filler episodes. And you can hear from listening back to those early episodes how much the show's evolved and how much our technology has evolved as well because there were some, some, some shocking mic uses way back yeah, in the past. Yeah, we did take our time trying to, uh, trying to figure out how we were going to do it, uh, especially when we weren't doing it in the same room. When we started this, dear listeners, we, we actually sat in the same room and uh, um, recorded it basically as live. And yeah. then lockdown happened, and we had to figure out very quickly how we we're going to do it. I've been through about three, four different mics, I think, during this to the one that I'm now currently using, yeah. and, and still feel the need for improvement. But, yeah, it's, it, it's been a ride. I mean, I, I, I've been thinking about what to say on this one, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply grateful to Andy for you know, uh, for doing all the hard work that he does. To be perfectly honest, I, I do the bugger of all. <laughs> I just turn up and, and talk. But Andy puts in all the hard work on this. And and therefore, if there were benefits to be reaped, then Andy should certainly be reaping them. But it's uh, it's testament to you, sir, for, for for helping make this show into what it is. Cheers, buddy. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't be, I mean, we saw it on the episode when you weren't around. And I basically had to talk to myself for an hour um, <laughs> that I couldn't do this show without someone to bounce things off. And it's been marvelous, this whole 100 show ride alongside you, because you're the perfect, you're the perfect foil to my plans. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> it's, I mean, we agree on a lot, but when we disagree, we respectfully disagree. But you know when to poke me with the right way in order to get a rant out of me. You know like, <laughs> you know how to rein me back in when I start to go off on one. Uh, you know, you've managed to like keep it, keep the flow going, which means that the editing process isn't as hard as it could have been otherwise. Uh, yeah, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm renowned for my flubs mid-flow. <laughs> my brain works a lot faster than my mouth does, so, uh, which is unusual, really, because I'm thinking ahead. And my, my mouth has a tendency to try and catch up with what I'm thinking about. But, I mean, I thought, I thought we'd start this episode with just a, a little bit of the secret origin of the, uh, of the film file. and how... Before we do, can I just quickly say, you know, with regards to the flubs, there's flubs and there's also the ums and airs. You're, you're a pauser and an um, uh, and I've started to recognise them in the audio transcript to be able to, like, condense them down. I'm a, you know, you know, 
It's like, you know, kind of person. So I keep trying to remove them because I realize that I say them far too much. And then there's the regular flubs. There's the very first flub that I made on the first episode, which has become a running joke, that The Rock is now referred to as uh, not Dwayne The Rock Johnson, but Rock The Dwayne Johnson. Yes. (laughs) Which I now actually use (laughs) in my own personal vernacular whenever I'm having to describe uh, The Rock. And then other regular flubs to listen to, particularly from Lee's point of view, whenever we talk about Tenet, Listen carefully how he pronounces Tenet. And um, <laughs> yes. he's, he's always struggled with Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> I've, I've struggled there and Apocalyptical. Apocalyptical. The... You said it. I know, I know. Because I knew you were going to. You said it. <laughs> I know you were uh, going to ask that. And, uh, and it was, it was, uh, I was working it through. But our flubs have become part of the charm. It's, you know, I've, I've deliberately kept some of them in because I think that some of them just completely reflect our personalities. And, you know, it shows that we're not. We're not a completely polished product because we we this show is well. We'll talk about the origins, and I'll say what the whole idea behind this show is as part of the origins. Yes. Yeah, so the origins started. Now, I, as I've mentioned many times, still work for the BBC as a as a, a presenter and a bit of a, an entertainment guru. So I used to have a, a regular show on BBC Radio Sheffield for many many years, twelve years all all in all. And what used to happen is then I'd have to talk about the blockbusters because of the nature of the audience. It wasn't a dedicated film show and felt that I was missing out or being able to talk about other things I was passionate about, films like film news and and uh, this, the stuff that we do with the deep dives or the unusual films that we we couldn't mention on air. And, and then my role within, after getting made redundant from the B, changed a lot. I mean, I still work with them. Uh, and where I'd just be featured to talk about, again, blockbusters or TV and that kind of thing or to pass comment if anything had happened in the news or do the Oscars. So I didn't feel I was talking about film in the best way that I knew that I would like to and, and felt that I could. And Andy and I have been friends for an awful long time um, through various cinema chains. <laughs> and uh, I broached the subject with Andy, knowing that he had previously had something called The Film File and 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 spoke to him whether he was interested. And, and a podcast felt like the, the way forward. And I remember... A very early conversation uh, at uh, the cinema where you work, saying, "What do you think to this?" And I think when you start on on an idea, you kind of you, it could go either way. Andy could have said yes and and, and decided to go for it, as, as he thankfully he did, or you could just let one of these things run and go, "Yeah, yeah, maybe good idea. We should do that." But we both jumped upon it and uh, and, and got things going pretty pretty quickly uh, and. We sort of figured it out as we went through, didn't we, Andy? I think more than anything yeah. else. Felt our way through it. Yeah, I mean, see, that, there's one of my things. I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> I'd, I'd done a radio show called The Film File back in like 2006 to 2008. And after that, I then put together a podcast whilst I was working at Cineworld called The Film File with we've called it film file from the foyer with some of the team there that we recorded once a month. And we kept that running for about a year and a half. So about 14 episodes. And then we all kind of drifted and nothing happened again. And so it's always been on the back of my mind that I wanted to get back to doing a podcast. And I'd been talking about it at work with Scott who featured on some of the earlier episodes. And hopefully we will get back from time to time into the new year. Uh, we bashed out ideas saying that because we'd both done podcasts in the past 
and we it was just that right timing because we were talking about the possibility of doing a podcast and then you come along and go I'm thinking about doing a podcast it was like perfect we're all on the same mindset at this one point in time and that's how it all got rolling pretty fast and there's loads of we're aware that we're one little pebble in an ocean filled with rocks of podcasts <laughs> about film I one mean, might say that we are the Dwaynes in the rocks <laughs> <laughs> And you can't, you can't turn around without seeing another film-related podcast pop up. So we wanted something that kind of reflected us and didn't just copy everyone else. And the formula of the old radio show that I did was news and then a look at something that we really love and then a, a look at what the new releases are. And so that seemed like the perfect formula to just adopt. So like it was bringing the old film file radio show back to life in podcast form. But we wanted it to not feel like we're just informing you of things. We wanted it, and this is where the whole idea behind the film file is. We want it to be like you're sat in a pub with your mates who are very enthusiastic about the subject that mm, they're talking yeah. about. And you're enthralled by their discussion as they're mocking each other, they're joking about the films, and they're talking about what's happening. And that's what feel we wanted it to be. We could have easily done a very straight lace. And now over to the news. And then um, you're going, yes, and in this news. And then, okay, moving on to the reviews. But we don't. We keep it flippant. We keep it vibrant. And we, we let our passion show. And that's what we got the response from when that great review was put in um, the magazine, the local magazine, a few months ago, that he could pick up on the banter and the natural friendship that we built up. And that's exactly what it was supposed to be. And continue to build. I think what's been really interesting is is our, I mean, we've known each other an awful long time, but I, I do think that the film file has, has cemented our friendship uh, and yeah. made it much deeper. And, uh, and um, you know, for, for a long time, especially during lockdown, you were the only other person I was talking to yeah. on a regular basis outside of family. And I think that cemented um, our, our relationship to, to the point where it is now. And I think, you know, through... And I, would, I was going to say through thick and thin, but the only kind of thins that we've had is been time schedule, yeah, uh, as opposed to a, a couple of problematic episodes with technology. But the majority of, of what we've done is has been down to the fact that that you and I uh, have always rallied through together and figured yeah. it out, and and it's really it really bolstered our, our relationship now and, and and how close we've become because of it. So I, I'd, I'd never take that away from from what the film files brought brought to us yeah i've had some people at work who like when talking about podcasting have says oh I've, I've always thought me and my mate have thought about doing a podcast and my only response now is just do it just sit yourself down around a table and record something don't don't just go for it once you've got that first episode out the way and you publish that publicized it from that point onwards it gets easier and easier to get into the flow because that first episode man we were just like grasping at ideas and I was like, ah, ah, when it came to the editing, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. But, <laughs> and you can tell, if you go back and listen to that first episode, you can tell that like it was, it was very quickly put together. But anyone out there who's got an idea for a podcast and wants their voice to be heard, just do it, just go for it. Because yeah. it's such a joy. It, the reward is in the fun that we have each week chatting. Yeah. We, ha yeah. we have we have we've had up to three hours worth of chat before now, which I've edited down to one hour forty because we've just gone off on tangents and rants and talking about each other's lives. I mean, over the course of the shows, we started to add these little bits at the beginning where it's just talking about what's happened in your life and how's things going on, which the radio version doesn't get. 
but we keep it on the main podcast because that's us. That's our personalities. And that's what this is. This is us. This show is us to a T. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think what, what we, we've done very well is reflect who we are, our, our worldview and, and what's been going on around us. And, you know, and that reflects into our reviews and into our talk about film because it's, it's not our only passions. But it's it's our passion that brought the film file to life, and and you and I yeah. to be friends. So I think keeping in those, and I, I was dubious about it at first. I, I know, but it 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 helped define the show. It helped define who you and I were to to our our audience, and um and I think it's it's made the show our show and as you said there are there are yeah. you, you can't throw a, a, a rock in at podcasting without founding a, a film show and yeah. you know and i think that's our unique selling point it's it's our passion it's our belief in what we're talking about it's our honesty about what we talk about and and also getting to know us and and we're not hopefully for those who don't know us we're, we're not sort of just faceless guys uh, trying out what every other podcast doing, you get to see a little bit of our lives since uh, since we started, and uh, it's it's been a ride. I mean, we've had to put up with a pandemic. We've um, we've never faltered from being able to deliver. We've gone from doing every couple of weeks to to a weekly. Um, we stuck by that, and it's it's not always easy. You know, we've got to find time, and um, you know, sometimes life has a tendency to get in the way of this. But we always figure out how to deliver, even if it's last minute. We've yep. done it. We used to be very last minute, didn't we? Very current. And we've yeah. given ourselves a bit of a, a bit of leeway now with the show. We found a, a formula that works, and uh, it has yeah. been an absolute blast. And uh, I, I remember talking about the the hundredth episode coming up and thinking, "Wow, I can't believe we've got that far, and now it's here." It's it's uh, we, we you know we we should have brought a cake <laughs> because it is worth celebrating the fact that we've done. I mean, for me, uh, I wish we could. We were out there and, and picking up 10 times the amount of, of listeners, but we are so grateful to those who do support the show, who do get in touch and, and do, do listen. And you know what? I, I'm a podcast fanatic. I love a good podcast. And it's hard to stay with something, even the, you know, the very slick ones, the expensive ones, to stay with it every week. So we don't expect you to be there every week, but thank you for subscribing. Thank you for coming back. We do it for the passion of, of, been able to deliver to to you guys so uh thank you very much for for sticking with us through a hundred episodes or however many you've been involved in but thank you just tell your friends tell 10 of your friends and they'll tell 10 and eventually we'll have an empire i mean there's so much we'd love to do isn't there oh yeah i mean we've got grand ideas that we need to rein ourselves in because we can't afford the grand ideas at this point in time yeah. we have time wise or money wise but we would love to be able to bring some of the grand ideas yeah. to you all out there. Um, it was interesting because Spotify this week has been doing its wrapped thing, well, the past couple of weeks, where you get to see your stats. But the podcasters also get their own Spotify wrap for pod podcasters. And uh, one of the things that cropped up is that over this past year, we've released 3,773 minutes worth of the, pod of the podcast. <laughs> wow. 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 <laughs> When you look and at it like that, that puts into context exactly how much we put into this each week, each year. But yeah, it's we, we like you said, um, we've changed how we used to record it. We used to record it last minute on a Tuesday, and then I'd literally have to finish recording, go straight on to editing. 
and then I've been editing until like one or two in the morning before now. But once we started working with No Barriers Radio, we then had the deadline that I, I couldn't, because we used to be able to put it off the editing until like Thursday. We could release the podcast when we wanted. But once you got the radio deadline, I've got to get it to, to them by the end of Wednesday night. So that was when it was like, we need to record earlier and give me a bit of time because if work gets in the way, I need to scrape whatever time I can get. So we now generally record on a Sunday, uh, usually about midday. And that gives me a couple of days to be able to space out the editing. And I've done it before now where I've had loads of time. And I'll edit a couple of, like half an hour's worth on the Sunday. And then I'll go back to it on the Monday and do a few tweaks. Then I'll do a few more tweaks on the Tuesday and then wrap everything up on the Wednesday. Or they've done it where I've gone, I've got loads of time to do it. And then he gets to 10 p.m. on Wednesday night. He's like, ah, quick, edit, edit, edit. <laughs> but that's, that's on me. <laughs> At least it's on me. And I don't feel the pressure unless I force myself to feel the pressure. And yeah, of course, we, we have the radio version. So if you, if you didn't know, this goes out on No Barriers Radio, which is a, an online radio station. And we retrofit the show, basically, to fit into, into a radio format. And that brings in listeners as well who, who don't necessarily subscribe but listen to to the show, which I'm told is very popular. And um, it's, it's just great. It's given us other avenues. And I think that's what we will think about over the next year is being able to get out there, build up our, our coverage, get to more people and, and how we can do that. And, uh, you know, we've got a product now and, and that's that's the beginning of the, of the whole race yeah. without having the film file to be able to, uh, to move things forward, uh, then you know the the future's got some some. It's, it's kind of endless to where we can go. Andy started the TikTok thing. He's you know inf- incredible at, at, at pulling together the social media side. But um, yeah, it's been a blast. So what's happening in our one hundredth episode? Well, of course we start off with the news because all our shows are about the news. We are going to be giving you the opportunity to tell us about the films that you've enjoyed over the year and the films that mean something to yourselves instead of our usual deep dive. We've got all the reviews where Andy will be talking about Resident Evil, Welcome to Raccoon City. You're a braver man than I am. West Side Story. Clifford, the big red dog. Yes, it's here at last. And Guy Ritchie's Wrath of Man. And of course, we'll be looking at this week's episode of Hawkeye. But before any of that, of course, here is the news. So this is the news, and as is our want, let's kick off with the box office. What is doing well, Andy, since last week? And we know the anticipation of, of what lands for next week. So we've got, is it is it kind of one of those filler weeks? Well, it kind of would have been a filler week, except for, you know, Spielberg releasing West Side Story. You would think that that wouldn't be filler. That would be killer. Um, but it's got off to a very lackluster start in the US. It took only $10.5 million over the opening weekend. I mean, critically, it's scoring well. The critics are praising it, but it's failing to find an audience, which is perhaps reflective of the caution at returning to cinemas that, in particular, the older generation have right now. Um, It's took an additional 4.4 million internationally, 1.7 million from the UK, where it took the top spot. And the figures are extremely disappointing for a film which cost over 100 million to make. And has a big name such as Spielberg behind it. And also such recognisable uh, songs. Uh, I was going to say IP, but yeah, West Side Story is one of the most famous musicals of all time and beloved. Is it just not hitting a younger target market? I mean, we know it sells out when it, it appears in theatres. So one yeah. would assume 
there was a built-in market for this. It's possible that it's just that time of year because we need to also remember that uh, The Greatest Showman came out around this time of year. And when that opened with only 8 million, that looked as lacklustre as this. But in the US, that ended up finishing on 174 million. So it's possible that it's it's been released too early in December before the audience is going to flock back. And over the festive period, it will gain more traction and get some repeat business and lead into the new year. Or the other side of the argument is that audiences don't want to go and see anything that isn't big blockbuster IP. So time will tell over this one. I think the next few weeks will prove interesting with the wealth of material that's landing and the variety of material to see what actually lasts through and what drops off quite suddenly. Dropping off this week into second place in the US is Encanto, which has taken its US total haul to $71 million to date, which is they're now up to $153 million worldwide. UK, it held third place and it's it's doing steady business. It's a good, charming Disney family adventure. If not stand out is what I'm, yes. I'm hearing reading between the lines. Yeah, it, it, it's nothing that really would wow you. But it's some, it's one of those things that just charms you in the right way when you get around to watching it. It's only a few more weeks before it comes out onto Disney Plus, so I don't think it's going to get much more traction at this point yeah. in time. Ghostbusters is still retaining third place in the US. Its total worldwide is 164 million to date, which, given it had a very moderate budget, that's more than more than pleasing for them. Um, House of Gucci and Eternals round out the top five. Eternals is now up to 395 million worldwide. And again, it's not long before this will be landing on Disney Plus just into the new year. Uh, I think it's about the 12th of January we get a chance to revisit it on the small screen. I'll, I'll revisit it. I'll happily revisit it. I had a lot of fun with Eternals. It opened up the Marvel Universe in such a, well, cosmic way. Yeah. And that's basically it for the box office. All eyes, obviously, now are on this next couple of weeks, what with a small Spider-Man film coming out. And there's this there's this thing about people trapped inside a matrix or something. And <laughs> Yeah, good word of, of mouth on Spidey. Yeah, the first lot of reviews are starting to seep out. Yeah, the critics are liking it, calling it a bit of a greatest hit. So you'll hear our review in one of these special winter holiday, uh, Christmas, how you name it, it'll be a special <laughs> one. And we'll have our review of the latest Spider-Man movie. And that's the box office. Any other news, Andy? All right, that's the box office. So, Andy, tell the world, tell me, what's news this week? So there's there's quite a fair bit of news, but it's all little short points mostly. Uh, let's start off with um, Shang-Chi. So after the success of Shang-Chi, Destin Daniel Cretton, the director, has now signed an exclusive multi-year deal with Disney, Marvel and Hulu. Part of the announcement confirms that he will return to the sequel for Shang-Chi. And he's also going to be working on a currently undisclosed MCU series for Disney+. Plus. Let Ooh. the speculation begin. I have some <laughs> speculations, but I uh, I don't want to sound like, oh, of course it's going to be this. I'm just thinking, um, uh, just exploring the world around Shang-Chi. So that would yeah. be my initial thoughts. I think it will be connected to Shang-Chi. Yeah, I, I reckon that's a pretty safe bet. As with, I mean, Disney are basically releasing 400 different shows for Disney Plus every week at the moment, aren't they? So uh, it's it's um, hopefully it just doesn't get lost in the myriad of shows that are coming up and hopefully it keeps the momentum going because I'm loving the Disney shows at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. You can, uh, I, you know, I could almost see a day in which the Disney shows suppress the movies. I, I, um, I'm thinking that just the, the time you can spend, and we'll, we'll talk about Hawkeye, as oh. I mentioned earlier, uh, how they 
give you much more backstory and give you time for characterizations, which you can't always do in, do in the films. Well, we'll see anyway. Sticking with Marvel, but over at Sony, the questions have been bandied around over the past few weeks of will Tom Holland continue as Spider-Man? Well, Holland over this past week has clearly got tired of being asked this and has given his definitive answer for this point in time. And it is, maybe, we'll see. <laughs> That's definitive. Thank you, Tom. He then went on to say, I love this character more than anything. The character has changed my life. I have a relationship with my fans that's so wonderful. I couldn't ask for it to be any better, but I want to do what's best for the character. If it's time for me to step down and the next person to step up, I'll do so proudly. You know, I'd love to see a more diverse Spider-Man universe, which would be really exciting. If I could be a part of that, if I could be the Iron Man to the next young Spider-Man or Spider-Woman, that would be great. But at the moment, all I have to think about is the character and what's best for Peter Parker. Did, does that sound like he's trying to say, bring Miles Morales into it and I'll it, coach it, him? You know, that was the first thing I thought. Yes, it did sound like Ma Miles Morales is your next up. Um, it also sounds like he's not the most definitive answer in the world. And we no. know that they're already sort of planning a fourth movie. So does that is that the handover movie? Uh, Tom Holland and handing over to Miles Morales. Again, pure, pure speculation. Well, the thing is, we know how bad Tom Holland is at keeping secrets. So maybe he has already signed up for a Miles Morales trilogy where he's going to be the mentor and he just ended up accidentally dropping it as a suggestion. <laughs> it was always on the cards, though, wasn't it? Let's be honest. Yeah, uh, it's been it's been expected and hinted at. And it, it'll be a great way to evolve the series. Um, in the meantime, Holland is going to be prepping to dance his feet off in a biopic about Fred Astaire for Sony Pictures. Yeah, I saw that. That's interesting. This is not to be confused with the other Fred Astaire project for Amazon, which will see Jamie Bell as the screen legend. Uh, the interesting aspect of this is that didn't ask Fred Astaire have it written into his will that he never gets represented on screen? Mm. You, you, I think so, you might be right on that. Um... I believe I, I remember reading somewhere that he had it written into his will that there was no, to be no adaptations of his life story. Wow, I did not know that. Wow, it's going to be interesting. So it's, it's interesting, you know, has the Astaire estate granted permission for this or do people just assume that it's perfectly fine to tackle and is there going to be some legality issues? We don't know. But it does seem strange that all of a sudden Fred Astaire's become the big thing for two different features to be made about. An interesting guy, though, an interesting character. And, uh, um, of course, the, the, the classic Ginger Rogers quote that, I did everything that Fred did. I just did it backwards in end heels, which is always <laughs> makes me smile. <laughs> Such japery. Um, sticking with comic books, but over at DC, when Colin, Colin Farrell was cast as Penguin for Matt Reeves as Batman, only to be heavily disguised under prosthetics for what is apparently only a five-minute minor role, it got us asking. I mean, we asked at the time, it's like, surely there's a good reason why they've cast a big name for such a minor and dis disguised role. Well, turns out there was because it's now been revealed that the actor is going to star and produce a spin-off series for HBO Max, which will delve into the Penguin's rise to power in the Gotham criminal underworld. This is what the plan was all along. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take us back to Marvel, actually. So we've been talking about this speculation for a good year, and that's Charlie Cox returning to play Daredevil uh, and has been welcomed back by Feige himself. And it looks like... You know, there was the rumour that is he going to appear in No Way Home as Peter's uh, uh, attorney. Yeah. But now the rumour is that he's going to appear in She-Hulk. But I'm hoping that Marvel take the reins on a, on a new Daredevil series for uh, Disney+, Plus because that would just make me the happiest boy in the world. That would be my Christmas present. He was a great Daredevil. And whilst I kind of lost interest in the show on season three, it became a bit too 
repetitive. Yeah, he, he was still magnificent in it. Yeah, he, he couldn't, couldn't take him. He, he was. He is how I see Matt Murdock. And hopefully, this opens the door for other cast members from the Netflix Marvel shows to be able to step across into the MCU, because there were some really great casting choices. I would love to see Jessica Jones introduced across because she was the most interesting complex character from the um, Netflix MCU. Yeah, me too. And uh, uh, I thought the casting of Mike Holton playing Luke Cage was absolutely brilliant. And and even John Bethnal to return as uh, the Punisher. I mean, the only one when you do that, if they are talking about a, a new Defenders series, is, is what you're going to do about Iron Fist. Shh, don't tell. But I don't think they'll be rehiring the actor to return as Danny <laughs> Rand. Just something tells me no. Don't expect that call. Are you trying to say he wasn't a popular choice? He wasn't a popular choice. Oh, so you're not and just I, trying. You just you just actually do say it. <laughs> I, I am just saying it wasn't popular. You know, it wasn't bad. He just was. It was just mis- miscast. He was a, a likable actor in in the wrong role, and yeah. it didn't have the physicality needed for that. Nothing wrong with his performance. Did the best he could. He played Danny Rand in a very specific way, which kind of worked uh, some of the time. Yeah. Just didn't have the physical presence needed for that character, and maybe he could have. If they'd have had a, a better showrunner on it, I don't know, but it, it just didn't work. Well, you know who do, does have physical presence? Who's that? That's Dave Batista. Yes, he does. I, can, I can't argue with you there at all. He's a very physical presence. Uh, well, he's now signed up to be in M. Night Shyamalan's next film, Knock at the Cabin. Is he now? Which is going to be the, the director's fifth film for Universal. And as with his previous outings with Universal, is going to be independently financed by the director himself who retains all creative control, for good or for bad. No details are known as yet, but the film is slated for a February 2023 release. Uh, Batista's quite a busy man over the next year, so where the shooting schedule is going to slot into his work on multiple projects that are going on, we don't know as yet. But Shyamalan's an interesting director for me, even though his films don't always hit the mark. I knew this story was coming up, and uh, I assumed it was going to come up, and I was thinking about his work and and... How often, even though I've liked it, there's always an element that falls short for me. Yeah. The fact that he keeps creative control over his own things, maybe he does need someone else to help him edit. Old was a great concept and it played generally well, but then the closing scenes outstayed their welcome a bit. But I'll always be interested to see what he brings. Yes. Everything he does is individual. Everything he does, he's got a personal slant on it. And that's what I like. He knows how to... You can see one of his movies and you, you can see how he shot it. Yeah. There's a style which is kind of unique and unusual and very much him. It's just there's always a quality where you go, for so much that was right, there's an element that, that just didn't work and, and it can sometimes throw you out of the movie. I love Unbreakable. It's my favourite of his films. But there's one element yeah. in that movie which kind of almost destroys it for me. And if you want to know what that is, it's the, the very last scene where it becomes an episode of the FBI and, and <laughs> uh, uh, you know, the, the, the titles come up on the screen and it just felt, that's not this film. This is a personal yeah. superhero movie, but it's, it's that same, same for signs as that one element of it, water being the thing that deterred these aliens. Why did they come to a planet which is three quarters of, of, of the planet is water? You know, it was... Just just little logic things every time that just knock it from being superb. So that makes uh, Sixth Sense, I think, his most perfect film. Not necessarily my favourite, but his most perfectly conceived film where every nod and every move of the uh, uh, move of the narrative, he gets right. Yeah, I'd kind of agree. My only problem with Sixth Sense is that 
as a story, it doesn't work. But as a cinematic telling, it does. It plays yeah, on conventions of audience expectation. So, you know, things like scenes starting off with Bruce Willis sat opposite Tony Collette, giving the impression that they've just been discussing the kid before the scene starts, when really she would have been sat in silence staring into space and he'll be sat there thinking, have I got into this house? And that's the problem with the story aspect is the things that you don't see complicate the story. But it was a great play on expectations and it pulled the rug beautifully. Personally, I I love The Village as his best story. I think that The Village was his his most thought through project. Didn't quite land with audiences, but for me, I just embraced it. Uh, But like I say, he'll always be an interesting director. Uh, to see what he's doing, particularly now that he's keeping it low budget and more creative. So sticking with Universal, and Universal look to be adopting the 45-day window starting from January um, of box office exclusivity, with plans for titles from Universal, Focus Features, Illumination, and DreamWorks shifting to Peacock after the shortened window before going to other services later down the line. The aim is to ensure that Peacock has a regular exclusive stream of titles throughout the year for its subscribers, However, there will be notable exceptions. Minions Rise of Gru will have a longer release date window. Jurassic World Dominion will have a longer box office release. And as we already know, Nolan's Oppenheimer will have the extended theatrical window as part of his contract with the studio. And speaking of Oppenheimer, there's been more casting. And now Florence Pugh, Rami Malek and Benny Safdie are set to join Robert Downey Jr., Matt Damon, Emily Blunt and Killian Murphy for the Nolan-directed film. The film focuses on J. Robert Oppenheimer, the scientist who ran the Manhattan Project and led to the invention of the atomic bomb. We know that Murphy is playing Oppenheimer and that Blunt is playing his wife, Kitty. Matt Damon is the project director, Lieutenant General Leslie Groves. And Robert Downey Jr. is Louis Strauss, the chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission. Safety will be playing Edward Teller, who's a Hungarian physicist who's known, known as the father of the hydrogen bomb. Malik is also playing one of the scientists of the team. And Pugh plays Gene Tatlock, who's a Communist Party member who has an affair with Oppenheimer. So it sounds like all the pieces are in place and it's ready to start. Oh, yeah. Good news. I'm looking forward to that. Of course, anything that Nolan puts his hand to is always going to be of interest. So we've talked about TV being the golden age. And you'd mentioned Colin Farrell, the big name star moving to TV in the Batman spin-off. Sylvester Stallone is now doing the same. He's heading for a new TV drama called Kansas City. And Kansas City follows the story of a New York Italian mobster, to be played by Stallone, forced to relocate to the most unlikely of places, which is Kansas City, Missouri. He's faced with the startling task of re-establishing his Italian mafia family to the modernised straight-shooting town of Kansas City. There, Sal, who he plays, encounters surprising and unsuspecting characters who follow him along his unconventional path to power. And the series is brought to you by a couple of heavyweights, Terence White, who brought us uh, Broadwalk Empire, and Taylor Sheridan. And that's for the streaming service, Paramount Plus, which we've already fallen out with. Yeah, even before it's rolled out in the UK, we've fallen out with. I'm interested because the name's involved. I just feel disappointed that it has to be Paramount Plus. Yeah. Over at Netflix, Mike Flanagan's new horror series based on Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher has scored its main cast. And what a cast. Frank Langella, Carla Gugino, Mary McDonnell, Carl Lumbly, and Mark Hamill. That's all that I need to know. I'm in. I don't need to know anything else about this series. Those names and Flanagan behind the scenes. I'm, I'm done. But 
just for those who aren't sold yet, Flanagan is working with Trevor Macy on this. The pair last worked on The Haunting of Hill House, which um, got a very good reception when it landed on the service. And it will weave in other Edgar Allan Poe stories into the adaptation of The Fall of the House of Usher. Big fan of Edgar Allan Poe, so I'm interested. Langella plays Roderick Usher, the patriarch of the Usher dynasty, with MacDonald as his twin sister, Madeline. Lumbly is an investigator, see August Dupin. And Gugino and Hamill's roles are unknown at this point in time. But anyone who knows anything about Poe knows that there'll be intrigue, mystery and some twisted distortions. Indeed. My very first film, Andy, which went straight to a blockbuster bin somewhere in the country, <laughs> was... After the blockbuster had shut. <laughs> yes, after, yeah. <laughs> it went straight to a landfill somewhere in the country. <laughs> was a film about Edgar Allan Poe. It was a musical, in fact, called Poe. You can see the Sing as a song. You can see the box office figures wondering why it didn't do well. As long as it did better than um, that Danny Dyer film that only had like one admit across the whole UK. When I it think you did. I think you did. I know it did well in Germany. That's um, good. The Germans will pick up anything. Yeah, they love a good music. <laughs> there are a variety of Star Wars series headed to Disney Plus in the next coming months, years, millennia, uh, but one still shrouded in mystery. And that is Leslie Headland's The Acolyte. We do at least now know some ideas of who will star in this show. And it is Amandia Stenberg, as reported to have nabbed the lead. It's set at the end of the High Republic era, roughly 200 years before Luke Skywalker's time. And it's here that the early Republic began to crumble and the dark side emerged. Of course, we will keep you posted. And when we hear even more, as there seems to be a countless Star Wars projects landing on Disney+. Plus. Barbara Broccoli has been speaking a little about the future of Bond. As she's been saying, with regards to the rumours that they might get a female Bond, she said, I think it'll be a man because I don't think a woman should play James Bond. I believe in making characters for women and not just having women play men's roles. I don't think there are enough great roles for women and it's very important to me that we make movies for women about women, which all makes sense. Why make Jane Bond when you could take Anna Deramus' character and give her a franchise spin-off instead. Which has been spoken about, as we know. Yeah. So all those who, who are still falling for the, the media reports of like, they're talking about a female James Bond, it's clear that they're not. Um, she also said that the nationality is important, but ethnicity isn't. He should be British, so British can be any ethnicity or race. So everyone's up for grabs, as long as they are from the United Kingdom, basically. And with regards to spin-offs, they're not necessarily on her radar. Sure, there are main characters like M and Q and all that, but we haven't really wanted to make a Bond film yet without Bond. It would be like making Hamlet without Hamlet, which I can kind of see her point, but the aforementioned Anna the Anna Diarmas project, fingers crossed something will happen with that. Hey, Andy. Yes? Were you a big fan of the uh, Cowboy Bebop adaptation? For Netflix? Not particularly. I struggled. You're not going to be disappointed then that it's only lasted one season? Uh, well, I'm I, I, I mixed opinions on this because I feel that the problem that you have with everything, and this is a problem that you have with binge watching, is something drops all the episodes on one day and you don't necessarily have the time there and then to sit and watch all the episodes. So you might watch one episode and then think, I'll get back to that once I've caught up on everything else. And that could take a few weeks. But Netflix are making these decisions after something's been out for two weeks. Not, It's not had its chance to find all of its audience yet. Whereas if something was released weekly, episode by episode, then you'll find out on week three whether it's building in viewership or whether it's declining. So binge watching is a problem because we're seeing this happen a lot with Netflix, that they make a show 
and then it gets cancelled because not everyone jumped on it on the first day. You shouldn't expect people to jump on it in the first day. You have a streaming service that has things there permanently. At least give something two months, analyse it, see how it did over the two months tracking, even just one month, and then decide whether it's got a future. I'd, I hadn't quite caught, I'd, I'd got to the third episode of Cowboy Bebop and I just wasn't feeling it it's for every reason that I said when we discussed it on the show, that it feels too anime, which as a live action kind of diminishes it. It's stylistic. The cast were great. But if I wanted to watch an anime, I'd just watch an anime. When it comes yeah. to an adaptation of an anime, I want to watch a real life film. But I'm disappointed at the way this this and other projects are getting treated by Netflix. They're throwing money at projects that are unique, are different, are special, but then not having the the decency to let them ride out. We saw it with, um, I mean, I know it wasn't warmly received. I kind of got it because I've loved the comic books, Jupiter's Legacy. Uh, that was another one that got cancelled. And again, I don't think it had time to grow any audience. Whether it would have is another matter, but they're cancelling them far too quickly. Yeah, no, I agree. I totally agree. I think some seas- some series, as you know, on on, on terrestrial and, and other broadcast means, they do take one season to be able to find their feet. Yeah. And if you've only got got half a season in, and it hasn't found its feet, I, I think the same way with Why the Last Man. I know that was a, a broadcast series, but it it was yeah. finding its feet before they they pulled the plug on it. And I think the second season would maybe where it would have taken off. But that's all a big what if. Yeah. Ben Affleck and Anna Diarmas's thriller, Deep Water, has been pulled from the release schedule. Is that to do with their relationship? Apparently they've had a, uh, they started a relationship on the filming of this erotic thriller by Adrian Lin, who sort of disappeared for an awful long time. Yeah. Well, the film's an adaptation of the 1957 novel by Patricia Highsmith, who gave us the talent of Mr. Ripley. And it tells of a married couple in a small town who only remain together through an arrangement where the wife can have other lovers so long as she doesn't leave the family. However, the husband's jealousy leads him to extreme measures to try to win her back. The film suffered a fair few delays. When they started production, Ben and Anna were a real-life couple. And apparently their split was amicable and they're still very close friends. But the, it was set for a January the 14th release which is only a month away. Yeah. But it's now completely vanished off the all the schedules with no news of whether it's going to resurface for cinema or whether it's going to go directly to streaming. I suspect the latter. I agree. I think to have pulled a film this close to its release date either means that there's a problem backstage that we don't see. Maybe it's to do with their relationship and that's having a negative effect on, on the release date. Or it's to do with... They just don't have confidence in it. We'll get to see it surface at some point in what medium we don't know at this point in time. Uh, Patty Jenkins has now stepped away from directing the Gal Gadot-led Cleopatra film. Now, a couple of weeks back, we reported that Jenkins' Star Wars Rogue Squadron was on a definite hold. And whilst other outlets were telling you that, oh, it's been cancelled, she's been cancelled, and Disney don't want her anymore doing Star Wars and... That wasn't the case. It was due to her commitments on other films slowing down the production, pre-production for Rogue Squadron. Well, this move to step away from directing Cleopatra and only produce it is to allow her to focus on Wonder Woman 3 and Rogue Squadron commitments. So expect that to be back on the table pretty soon. Instead, she's just going to serve, as I said, as producer. And the directing gig has been given to Falcon and Winter Soldier director Carrie Scogland. Oh, and I liked her style. I thought her style was, yes. was fantastic. It'd be interesting to see where she goes on a bigger canvas. And you can't get much of a bigger canvas 
and Cleopatra. One bit of news that got me excited. What's that, Andy? We do love Paul Verhoeven. We do. We've not seen much of Paul Verhoeven for much, far, far too long. And we do particularly like his work that he did with Ed Numia of yes. Robocop and Starship Troopers. We did a deep dive on it, in fact. The pair are teaming up for a new political espionage thriller named Young Sinner. Are they now? Verhoeven said this week that the new film is going to draw on the themes of erotic thrillers like his own basic instinct, but will be a more innovative version. And it'll be set in DC and follow a young female staffer working for a powerful senator who's drawn into a web of international intrigue and danger. And I'm in. Can I make a, can I do, do a link from there? Talking of DC, <laughs> see where I'm going with yeah. this. Okay. Uh, yeah. Filming has started <laughs> on Batgirl and it has been filmed in Glasgow. And that Glasgow. city is, <laughs> I was waiting for you to do that. And that is doubling as <laughs> Gotham City. And apparently they've whited it out. So the, we know that the story is set during the Christmas period. So they've snowed it up to give the impression. Now, if they just wait another couple of weeks, I think they'll be able to just carry on with their own snow. But um, they, they snowed it up to make it look like Gotham City at winter. I mean, does that mean it's going to be a festive film every year? It could like be. Die Hard. This, is, this is straight to <laughs> HBO Max, isn't it? It's not getting a cinema release. I think we talked about this. Yeah, it's a HBO Max. It, it might get a limited cinema run alongside, but it is straight to HBO Max. And nicely timed for our 100th episode where we're going to be talking about best films of all time and things like that. The good old American Film Institute obviously heard that we were going to be doing this show because they've announced its annual top 10 films and TV show lists. Ah. So the top 10 best films, according to the American Film Institute for this past year, are Coda, Don't Look Up, still got to see. Yes, looking forward to that. King Richard, Licorice Pizza, which comes out in the UK in January, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, Tick, Tick, Boom, the Tragedy of Macbeth, which lands on Apple TV Plus this next week or two. Right, okay. And uh, West Side Story. And from the ones that are seen within that list, you know what? I pretty much agree with them. I've still to see uh, West Side Story, as you know, and um, gagging at the bit to see it. My dancing shoes are ready to go on. I don't, I can't believe how camp I sounded when I said that. <laughs> I can. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh. The 10 best TV shows of the year. Hacks, Maid, Murder of East Town, Reservation Dogs, Schmigadoon, which I've, I've had on my radar to watch yeah, for me a while, too. but wasn't sure. Um, Succession, Ted Lasso, The Underground Railroad, WandaVision, and The White Lotus. A diverse mix of genres within there. And sadly, I've only seen two out of those. If you want ideas of what shows you should be tapping into to jump on board... The, the AFI's lists each year are always a good choice because I've never been disappointed by anything that the AFI have rattled down into their top 10 lists. In addition, the Writers Guild of America has shared a list of the 101 greatest screenplays of the 21st century so far. I don't think we've got time for whole, the whole uh, list there, Andy. I'm not going to rattle through the whole lot, but I have got the top 10, which are an interesting mix. Uh, Get Out, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, The Social Network, Parasite, No Country for Old Men, Moonlight, There Will Be Blood, Inglorious Bastards, and we covered it in a deep dive, and it was my first time watching, Almost Famous. Wow, wow, some great choices in those. I'd like to see that list. You must uh, you must post it on our show notes. The full list can be found on the uh, Writers Guild of America's website, uh, but I'll post a link in the description. Um, a little bit of sad news before we go. Firstly, award-winning director Lena Wertmuller dies aged 95. She made her directorial debut in 1963 with a film called The Lizards, and that was followed Let's Talk About Men. Films included Seven Beauties, starring regular collaborator Giancarlo Giannani, 
and scored an Oscar nomination and saw Workmother become the first woman to be nominated as Best Director. Other films include Swept Away, Seduction of Mimi, Love and Anarchy, and All Screwed Up. And then sadly, we heard the news of the passing of uh, gothic author Anne Rice. She responsible for Interview with a Vampire. Um, and as I mentioned this to Andy before we started recording this segment, um, she's not going to live to see some of the TV projects which are in development with, uh, based around her work. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the books. I've got all of the Lestat series of books, which were still going. You know, she was continually working on her Vampire Chronicles and adding more and more layers to the characters. We saw an adaptation of Interview with a Vampire with Tom Cruise, a, a, a role that was cast against her wishes with an actor who she had no respect for, who, when she saw him as Lestat, immediately ate all her words and took back her anger and resentment and embraced him as the representation of Lestat that she envisioned in her head. And then we got a terrible Queen of the Damned follow-up with a completely different cast that tapped into the wrong kind of market. It went for an MTV generation approach rather than following the themes of the first film. And since then, any projects for the Interview of the Vampire series, the Vampire Chronicles, have laid dormant. But over the past few years, it's sparked a life for a TV series that Anne Rice and her son Christopher had been working with various directors and creators over the few years to try to bring to life. At one point, Brian Fuller was on board, which seemed like a perfect match, but then things fell apart on there. Brian Fuller, very particular about his creative process, probably led to some friction. And Last year, it was looking, she, she, she always cryptically announced that things are looking good. Things are coming ahead. We're getting there with this. But we'd never had any definitive news because I don't think she wanted to get too many hopes up until something was in the can. And now she'll never get to see what she's been laboring away, not only as a writer, but also as a producer for the past few years to try to bring what she was considering to be the definitive version of her books brought to film it's a shame but her legacy will live on there is a wealth of books if if all that you know about the vampire chronicles is the first couple of books interview with a vampire queen of the damned vampire Lestat, then let me tell you there's like another 14 books on top of there and the story of Lestat got more and more intriguing and interesting over time it's a sad loss she was a great writer she tapped into a vampire loving audience in a better way than what a certain sparkly vampire franchise writer did. And uh, I, I am quite saddened by this news. So the official story, she passed away due to complications resulting from a stroke. She was 80 years old and she leaves behind her son, Christopher. And that's our 100th edition of the news. If you're enjoying our 100th episode, then please head over to your favourite podcast platform, Find the film file, hit the subscribe button and give us a big old like because we've been doing this for so long now. I think it's about time we got some likes. We deserve them. You'll get all the latest episodes, any additional news, access to, well, just the film file empire. All you have to do is head over to that podcast platform. Remember to like us and subscribe. If you want to know more about the film file, though, and why wouldn't you? All you have to do is this. Head on over to Twitter and follow us at Filmfile UK. Look for us on Instagram and Facebook, Filmfile UK. Pop over to TikTok and uh, follow us there, Filmfile UK. You might spot a theme in this uh, that um, Filmfile UK is used quite frequently. Basically, search for Filmfile UK wherever you want, 
and you might just fall over us. Um, if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can do so by emailing us with thoughts, suggestions. Even though it's the 100th episode and we're taking a break, I will be putting together episodes over the next few weeks. So anyone who still wants to get your top five films lists for either this year or for all time, feel free to email them over and I'll cover as many as I can when I'm doing the filler episodes. And that email address is podcast at filmfile.uk. So as this is our hundredth episode, we're going to forego our usual deep dive and tell you some, well, of our origin story. What got us into cinema? Well, we're old enough to remember a day when there wasn't streaming services, a day before home viewing, a day when you had to go out, literally leave the house and go to your favourite picture house. I grew up in Sheffield and I grew up in Liverpool, but I'm sure part of our film file story is knowing where we saw those films. Andy, um, have you got a memory of going to the cinema for the very first time and, and, and where you saw that film? Uh, well, from the very first time, I was getting taken to the cinema by my mum frequently from a very early age. But the one that's, it, it's my earliest childhood memory. It wasn't actually back in Liverpool. Okay. It was nowhere near there. It was down in London. Right. Because we were staying with relatives at the back end of 1977 for Christmas to New Year. And my mum, being the big film fan and sci-fi geek that she is, knew of a little film called Star Wars that was getting released in London before it went into general UK distribution a month later. Those were the days. And so whilst we were down there, we went to the West End of London to watch Star Wars. I was aged four, and it's my earliest childhood memory. And that is the point at which I was impacted immensely with film. That film is the reason why I'm passionate about film because everything about it captivated my young mind. The, the look, the style, the music, everything. And it, what I am today has all stemmed from that one defining moment. But generally, when we were back home, the small town that we, we live at on the outskirts of Liverpool, we were closer to a, a, the town of St. Helens, where it was the St. Helens ABC, which was our usual haunt. And we used to line up around the block in that way that you used to in those olden days. Yes, indeed. And you'd literally go all the way around the block. And it was one of those three screen cinemas where it's got one great big grand screen with smoking on the left, non-smoking on the right. A little like lounge area before that screen to settle in before you could get allowed in. And then two little box screens downstairs where junk such as Empire of the Ants, which I got tucked to see, <laughs> um, <laughs> would play. And I have loads of fond memories of... A multitude of films watching there, your Supermans, your ETs, all the films, even Police Academy, not the first one because I wasn't old enough, but the second one was a more um, age-friendly film and I got to see that there. And I've got so many memories of good and bad films. We saw the Village People movie at the ABC St. Helens. Good Lord. And uh, yeah, my mum subjected us to everything. Uh, but I also got to see things like Grease, which I absolutely lapped up and loved. And it helped because my mum was like not just catering to me with my sci-fi and geeky tastes, but I've got two older sisters that my mum had to cater for them as well. So I got to see a diverse range of films. And I think that benefited me because I didn't get trapped into it's got to be action and like spectacle. I got to embrace film at a very early age in all its different forms. I, I'm with you on Star Wars. I um That was the film that 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 got the the sort of juices running to have some kind of industry connection to, to cinema. And I saw that at uh, the Gormont Cinema, which is sadly gone now in Sheffield, which was a, 
uh, a bit like you, they had one massive, beautiful screen, an, an oldie styley auditorium. Uh, and I saw so much there uh, and had a small box screen where I remember seeing things like Nosferatu, the Vin Vendors version mm. on a double bill. Remember double bills with Ralph Bakshi's Wizards. And I went to see Wizards because of uh, the, the animated film and, and Nosferatu was playing. And I think I left enjoying Nosferatu much more. But um, yeah, I mean, cinema was was in my blood. My parents took me from from being very, very young. I think my earliest memory would have been going to the Odeon in Barker's Pool, Sheffield, to see Thunderbirds Are Go. Yeah, it was Thunderbirds <laughs> Are Go. And and I would have been, I must have been about three or four. I'm being blown away, and I remember that. But my mum was great, a bit like yours, for taking uh, my younger sister and I to see all the Disney movies. We went to see as much as possible. And, and there was a time when my, my parents used to, used to park me and my sister in the cinema then go and do shopping and, and left us to it, even at a young age, which now all sorts of laws would have been broken. But we saw uh, all the classic Disney animated films. Um, my mum would take us on a regular basis. And then when I got a little bit older, would make the journey on my own. Uh, much more braver than than a lot of kids now would have been. And, and I went and sat in, sat in silence and was overawed. It was my church. It really was. So the, the outstanding cinemas were the Gourmont, the ABC. I, I did try the ABC Miners Club, and I hated it, mm. uh, where you'd get a, a cartoon, you'd get a cereal, you know, you get one of the black and white Universal, RKO Universal serials. But I hated them because they were too... Um, they were too noisy. And I've always been that thing about wanting to enjoy my films with the with the silence of being able to hear it. I, I hate people, absolutely detest people talking in a, in a movie. It's a, my huge pet peeve. Uh, and I didn't enjoy them, even at, at that young age. I wanted to sit there and absorb these, these beautiful images in front of me, whatever the film is. But um, yeah, a bit like you for the ABC, I saw Superman there, went straight from school because my school finished early. Star Trek, the motion picture there, Lethal Weapon, it was fantastic. They, they were two very, very beautiful cinemas, sadly both gone. There was a Flea Pit cinema in Sheffield. There was, a, well, a couple of Flea Pit cinemas in Sheffield. The classic, and that used to show uh, second-run movies. That's where I saw 1941. Yeah. And uh, my dad accidentally took me to see a soft porn movie because it played double bill <laughs> with, a, with a kung fu movie. Uh, we'd gone to see the Kung Fu movie and we were sticking around and it was my oh my my first introduction to boobs. Uh, and I remember my dad being quite embarrassed going, do you want to leave? And I'm going, no, no, I think we'll stay. Um, we had the studio five, six and seven in Sheffield, which were were notorious cinema, uh, a lot of adult films or, or softcore pornography. But they again, you'd sometimes get the second run. I remember seeing Year of the Dragon. Uh, and then we had The Anvil, which again was a, a, one of those cinemas where you had uh, all the all the reruns. So if you missed it first time around, you got to see it there. And I actually, I missed Raiders of the Lost Ark the first time around on a rerun cinema. So there were some beautiful cinemas. I mean, you used to have one cinema chain, which was, uh, would show one kind of movie from one yeah. distributor, like Warner's and, and the like. And then the other one, which would show things for, for Fox and Universal. It was, it was weird back then. You'd, the, the cinemas that we have now basically show everything. And, uh, um, it, yeah, you used to have an, uh, an allegiance. You had one favourite cinema, clearly, as over the other one. But you'd go to where they were showing the movies that you wanted to see rather than just turn up at 
your cinema, in for, for instance, and go, I want to see that and, or see that or see that. But they were fantastic. It was a fantastic experience going to the cinema. When I was um, in the early teens, the Showcase Cinema in Liverpool was built and this was the first introduction in Liverpool to having a multiplex cinema, an American-styled multiplex cinema. And I think it was 12 screens, six down one corridor, six down the other, in what was their standard format layout for a Showcase Cinema. And that became the haunt for me and my mates from school as we started to go to see films without a parent or a guardian. And the, the most defined, I mean, we saw Highlander 2 there. We saw like a, a range of like our, our usual passions. But the one that stands out for me is I got to see Terminator 2 Judgment Day on its opening day, the very first show, and got a free T-shirt as a result. Yeah, let me tell that story. It sticks in my mind because the T-shirt was a kid's size and we were all over 15. And it was just like, why are you giving away kids' T-shirts to a film that is rated not for kids? And the poor, the poor soul who I was moaning and having a go at, I just feel so sorry for. And I still, I said it then when I last regaled people with this story. If you are listening out there and you remember some absolute knobhead with long hair and a leather jacket (laughs) giving you lip about you giving me a small shirt, I'm really sorry. I understand that you have no control over it now. I understand now I work within the industry. And if I scarred you for life, please, please get in touch and I'll I'll recompense you in one way, shape or form. (laughs) But no, the showcase was my first introduction to the multiplex experience where all of a sudden the sound, wow, we suddenly had sound all around us, surround sound speakers and the the crispness of the projection. And when I moved to Sheffield, and made this my home. At first, I only thought that the Odeon was a thing. But then I discovered that there was a Warner's cinema out in Meadowall. And that became the place for me to go right up until the back end of the 90s when Virgin opened their big 20-screen megaplex, which is now the Cineworld after going through UGC when I started working there and then moving on to Cineworld. Obviously now, you know, my haunt of choice has to be the light cinema in Sheffield because not only is it the coziest cinema around, it's it doesn't feel like a chain cinema. It feels like an indie cinema. It's got a, a it's got a manager there who's so passionate about film <laughs> and that he will talk to anyone is. about love of film. Uh, but no, even when it, before I started working there, when I first went to the light, I loved the aesthetic of it and I loved the the nature of the reclining seats and this that it, it's a it's a film lovers cinema. Whereas Cineworld has become it's become an entertainment cinema. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and I think that's reflected in in the kind of audiences that you get uh, at, at either cinema. Really, uh, nothing to decry or take anything away from either. But uh, uh, you some know, people uh, want just the thrill and the 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 thrill, the different effects, the three D, the shaky chairs, etc. That's fine if if that's your bag. City World caters beautifully for that. It gives you all the bells and whistles of entertainment. And I've got to thank City World for being so generous in in their times I, I don't have the relationship i used to have with them but they were incredibly generous and uh, i had my uh, 40th birthday party at, uh, at the cine world in <laughs> and uh, at my, a screening of my own favorite film so I, just the experience of, of sitting in in the cinema i still get i, I never take it for granted andy even after you know yeah. I've, I've been so honored to be able to see films ahead of schedules in, in the old days weeks ahead of schedule uh, being able to to meet people connected to to cinema, and uh, but I never take it for granted. I I love the experience, and it is a, it's still an experience. And um, and I I, I kind of glibly said it's my church, but I 
it, it is cinema is my church it's it's where i go and 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 worship this art form that, that i've made so many good friends out of and and constantly constantly gives me gives something back into my life uh, on on such a on a regular basis it was through cinemas that we got to know each other yeah absolutely uh, you were a regular attendee at the press shows that we used to run i miss press shows i would though. i would either be working or would try and make myself available to go into the press shows and we just got like it was just from the little like five minute chats with me you and usually tony earnshaw yeah um afterwards that we just discuss our initial thoughts on the films before going on our separate ways and then over time we just built up that rapport yeah yeah absolutely so, um i i you know the, the press shows have, have sort of dis- dissolved and disappeared unless you live in uh, the capital where you can get to see movies on prior to release but it, it doesn't happen before you could you, you could sometimes be a month in advance uh when i used to yeah. write for magazines that's how I, I got my initial press pass uh i was a film reviewer for a magazine and and started and just being able to to have the time to to write up a story and then then get it printed in within a week which you know you've got a, a movie that launches on a on a thursday or a friday and you either have to how, now have the time to go to a, a screening first thing or, or just hope that, you know, you can catch some sort of pre-show version of it. It's, it's much harder to be able to do. I wouldn't be able to do the shows that I used to do for the BBC the way that I, 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 could, I could just couldn't possibly do it anymore. Not at all. I think that's the only disappointing side of, of the way the cinema's gone, that, you know, you don't have that, that build-up to it, uh, a good couple of days to be able to get into it. It's all last minute with the with the critics' releases now. Yeah, yeah. And it's... It, to some extent, I, I don't think the cinema industry needs critics anymore or just doesn't rely on them as much as we did. I mean, I, I'm never saying I've ever broken a film, but I know I've generated interest in films by having a, a you know, mass yeah. audience to be able to talk about it. So cinemas are important to us in a huge way, but they wouldn't be important without the films that we all love and that we flock to the cinemas to go and watch either in droves or, as in many cases, as the only person sat in the screen watching (laughs) something play out in front of us. But we've spoken for 99 episodes and a few bonus episodes about the films that mean something to us, our favourite films, our top films of all time, or the films that we've we've got some love for, or, in a few cases, Ghost Rider, uh, we didn't particularly enjoy, but we wanted to cover anyway. So for the 100th episode, we wanted to do something a little different. And so we asked all you lovely people out there to submit some some choices of not necessarily what you'd consider your favourite five films of all time, but five films that you feel that everyone should watch. The five films that mean something to you in one way or another. And we've had some great responses from um, a wide range of listeners out there. And what we're going to do is we're going to bounce between us, talk through the lists from the people who've submitted them with shout outs to each of those people. And talk about what our feelings are on the film choices that are in there. Shall I kick off with the first lot? Yeah, go for it, Andy. So, first of all, over on Twitter, Franglaze27, who goes by the name of L, said that she's probably missed so many, but has gone with the first five of her favourites that came to mind, which I can relate to that because if someone said to me right now, pick five of your favourite films of all time, I'd probably get to 20 and then go, oh, you only wanted five, didn't you? Uh, So her first five that came to mind, and I feel quite bad about this list, and I'll tell you (laughs) why after I've read it out. Uh, Incendies, If Beale Street Could Talk, Before Sunrise, Set It Off, and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. 
Now, the reason I feel bad about this, I've not seen any of them. I mean, I've heard so much about the uh, Before Sunrise and that series of films. Uh, the majority, no, I've not seen, but I have seen the Before Sunrise series, uh, which are beautiful, beautiful films. And those films that, you know, sometimes you get films that mean an awful lot to you. That's one for me. Or, or that's three for me, should I say. It's something that's been on my radar for so long. In fact, all of these films have been on my I need to get round and watch at some point list. And now having someone basically tell me my watch list to me has made me feel, you know what? In the new year, when we come back with the show, I think we should dig into some of these films that we've clearly overlooked. Yeah, absolutely. And add, add them onto our deep dives each week. So if you want to know our feelings on those films, listen in over next year, because we'll go through them over time, and uh, particularly the Sunrise series, which you've seen, I've not. So I think we'll probably kick off with that in the new year at some point. Yeah, I, I love the Before the Sunrise, especially the first one. The first one, and, and we've always talked about the films that we love because they speak to you at a time when when something's happening in your own life. But the very first one sort of just, just impacted me in a really, really big way and uh, uh, absolutely... Loved it. Um, and subsequently, all of the films, but the first one is just something special for me. Mine's from Wesley McDade. Uh, Wesley and I are, are friends, and we were working on a film project together, which you had a very slight but important part in when we shot a, a trailer for uh, a movie which we were <laughs> trying to sell. And he says his top five films of all times would be Lord of the Rings, as I'm assuming that's the entire series. Because well, the thing about Lord of the Rings is you've got to look at it you can't look at it as an individual film. You have to yeah. look at it as the, as the entire epic. Uh, Goonies, you know what? I'm going to tell you something now. I've never seen Goonies. Oh, that's going to be a deep dive then. I've, been, yeah. I've had that on the back of my mind for a deep dive for a while. So that's going on the list for next year. Everything else I've seen on his list. Uh, Stand By Me, which is a beautiful film. Uh, Leon, which I know that Wes has had it on every format available that you could possibly have Leon on. Uh, and Jaws, which is, as you know, is my all-time favourite film. But he did uh, he did come back with a caveat. He said, if uh, you don't want to choose one of those, you have to put in uh, Highlander. So, <laughs> yes, Highlander is in there as well. And his film of the year he's put in is Finch, Ooh. which we both liked an awful lot. Yeah, it's a, it, it's a beautiful film. Really, like, heartfelt film. Nadine over on Twitter, Nadine Geneva. Go follow these people who are named from Twitter. Again, said it was hard to pick just five. But submitted Villeneuve's Dune, which, um, oh, yeah, I, I have to wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. He's a huge fan of the book. That is a solid choice. Both on our uh, film of the year. The Matrix, Sex, Lies and Videotape, Call Me By Your Name and Mad Max Fury Road. Quite oh, a really? diverse mix of films there. Um, yeah. Obviously, Nadine's got a love for sci-fi with a few of the choices there. Again, a couple of films in there that I've not seen. Call Me By Your Name and Sex, Lies and Videotape. Both films that have been on my radar. I've seen uh, Sex, Lines and Videotape. I've not seen Call Me By Your Name, though I did interview the author of the book, uh, who was a charming fellow. I did a lot of fun. Grant Bridges emailed in to say, in no particular order, hasn't seen much over uh, this year. So everything on the list is, is something that I've seen and absolutely uh, I would highly recommend. So in no particular order, Taxi Driver, Once Upon a Time in the West, Alien, yep, that would be in my top five. Yeah. Uh, Get Carter, which would definitely be in my uh, top ten. And Back to the Future. Some really, really, absolutely stunning choices in there. Yeah, I, I, 
they, those, those are the kind of choices that completely speak to me personally. I, I couldn't disagree with any of those films. Stevie Dan 1969, who got a shout out last week because he provided our first guest submission for the deep dive. He put, again, Aliens got in there. You had Alien from one of your choices. We've got the sequel, Aliens. Yeah, Hard Boiled, Dances with Wolves. The Hitcher, I will assume the Rutger Hauer one there. I will, yeah, I will not. That's be... a film we ought to do as a deep dive. Uh, the that blew me away. I've had it on, on DVD for years. You know, I've never rewatched it. Uh, and I probably will never will rewatch it unless we do it as a deep dive. But it was so such a, a, a great movie. I mean, this is great because we're going we're to pad out a whole lot of the next year's deep dives just from these lists. <laughs> um, we didn't do this just for you to do the work for us, ladies and gentlemen. We did want to get an idea of what kind of films you love. And his last film was The Omega Man, which is something that we've touched upon when we did our deep dive into post-apocalyptic films. Yeah, we talked about when we did I Am Legend. And uh, I've got a lot of love for Omega Man. I remember seeing it on TV. I've never seen it other than a, a, a TV version of it. And while it's disappointing next to, you know, the Richard Matheson book, in its own right, it's, 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 a, it's a good movie. It's not a great movie, but that's not, not the reason that we're talking about these films. They're not, they don't have to be great movies. They have to be movies that are, appeal to you, that are, are something special. A few of my colleagues at work submitted some. Stephen Blaine Young submitted, this is, this is an interesting mix, the Middle Earth Saga. So again, we have someone cheating with the Lord of the Rings and basically submitting it as one, um, which I kind of cheat the same way because for the <laughs> reasons that you said, it can't be seen as individual films. It has to be seen as one story. Uh, he's got The Lost Boys, which we've covered in a previous deep dive. Avengers Infinity War. Interesting that he doesn't include um, Endgame as like a double bill, the same way they did with Middle Earth. But, you know, I'm not going to hold that against you, Steve. And uh, <laughs> Empire Strikes Back, which, yeah, I mean, why not take the best of the original trilogy of Star Wars? And the, the one that stands out here is Lovely Bones. Oh, really? That's Which is such choice. a different choice compared to the rest of them. It's a very interesting choice. And again, a film that I've not watched. <laughs> I watched. Don't have much love for. Um, don't think it's a bad film by any stretch of the imagination. But I don't have, have much in the way of, uh, of, of love for it. But yeah, an interesting choice. But, um, we'll add that onto the list for next year's Deep Dive simply because I've not seen The Lovely Bones. So keep listening, Stephen, into the new year because we will talk about one of your favourite films going ahead. Um, Andy Kennedy and his partner, Rachel, submitted a list each. Andy's one's which he admits changes regularly. I guess if we asked him again now, he'd have a completely different five. <laughs> Green Mile, Batman Begins, Aladdin, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Seems to be a very popular one, this one. Yeah. And uh, Jurassic Park, which, yeah, I mean, each of those films I can completely understand. I'm, I'm, I'm completely behind you with that one. But Rachel tapped into my soul, absolutely tapped into my soul with her choices. And I, I never realised that she was my soulmate. So Rachel... Thanks for listening. Uh, but Lord of the Rings trilogy again, Ghostbusters, the original, Jurassic Park, Nightmare Before Christmas, and this is the one that really got me, The Blob, the 1950s version. Oh, right. And you know what? I've got a lot of love for the um, the remake. I think the remake's really, really good. Yeah, it's yeah, a solid I've, remake. I've a, I, I do have some love for The Blob. I remember catching it on a, a kind of a triple bill of, of 1950s monster movies and uh, clearly the standout out of all those movies. So, so fantastic choice. Absolutely fantastic choices. Uh, Wesley Alexander gave us Joker, okay. Life. I'm going to assume that he means Life, the sci-fi one. Um, Not the about Eddie the Murphy. Thing. 
not the Eddie Murphy bad comedy. But if it was the Eddie Murphy bad comedy, please, Wes, let us know. And I apologize. Not, you know what? I don't think it's bad. <laughs> uh, you know what? As, as some of the later product from Eddie Murphy, that middle ground, I think it's, it's one of his strongest. Yeah. I mean, it's not. It's, it's definitely not in his worst pile. Um, the Last Samurai. I remember I remember going down to see the, the UK premiere of that. I got tickets uh, for two of us to go down and do the red carpet treatment and everything. I've got quite a bit of love for that film as a result of the experience of watching it in that environment. I've not been back to revisit it because I'm worried it might be one that didn't quite live up to what my expectations were, but I might revisit it in the new year and uh, feedback what my current thoughts are on it. Uh, Peanut Butter Falcon is a great choice. I've not seen that. Well, uh, let's, It's on let's my list, to, but I've not add, seen it. Let's add that onto the list for next year. And now, Wes... Before I say your last one, I need to apologise and I will explain <laughs> my hatred of this film in great detail. Go and for that it. That is Marley and Me. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not a fan, but I can see why people like it. It's, it's incredibly, incredibly manipulative, but it, it's got heart to it. Even though it's manipulative, it's got heart. It, we got to see Marley and Me at a Fox Slate presentation day as a double bill with Tom Cruise's Valkyrie, which was the World War II set. Yeah, good movie. Story. Great story. We saw that first, then had a break for the afternoon, came back in and watched Marley and Me. And it was the worst experience at a <laughs> Slate presentation day in my life. Well, the second worst. The worst was when we got, we got thrust pitch perfect on us. Um, when we were expecting Les Mis, and I hate that film even more. But um, Marley and Me, it was trite. It was saccharine-inducing. It was Owen Wilson and a dog, and a Labrador as well. And it, it's one of those films that, as it got to the manipulate, manipulative emotions of the end, where it kept fading out as a heartfelt moment, and then fading back in. And I became aware that my colleague who was sat next to me kept chuckling every time it faded back in. And I didn't realise why until afterwards when he said that every time that it faded out and faded back in, he just heard me muttering under my breath, oh, for <laughs> sake. <laughs> and that was it. That, that was all that he enjoyed from the film. I hated the whole experience. And when I, when I was talking about it at work afterwards, like when, when it finally came out on release and people were saying, oh, I really loved it. I was like, I've got no love for that film. And I had people telling me, oh, you need to own a dog in order to understand the emotion. I think that's a big part of it, Andy. I really do. But my answer back on that one is that I've never owned a robot, but I cried at Wally. You shouldn't <laughs> need to... Ha I grew up, I had dogs when I was growing up. I've seen two beloved pets pass away. The film just... Like you say, it manipulated, and that's what I didn't like. I didn't need manipulation of the emotion. I just wanted a story to be told. I think that the, probably the source material it was taken from is uh, publishings about his life with his dog. Probably are more interesting than the film itself. It didn't work for me, but this is what the film file is all about. We don't always agree on films. You've got love for it, Wes. You put it in your top five, and that's fantastic because we will never agree on everything. But we love we love that people will embrace all range of films. Have we got some more? Uh, yeah, we guessed it on his show, but Harvey um, submitted his ones. And he submitted full write-ups, which I'm not going to read through the full write-ups. I might record them over the Christmas period. But his top five, Arrival, the Amy Adams and Jeremy yeah. Renner film. Totally Great agree. film. He's another one who's chosen Call Me By Your Name. And his write-up of it, has sold it to me. So this is one that we will deep dive and I will save his write-up until we do the deep dive so we can talk about it then. Okay. Uh, three Billboards, 
which I've yeah. never seen that as a double bill. Um, I saw that followed by Shape of Water. And th- wow, that's the best double bill I've ever done in my whole life. It was such a great walking out of one straight into the other. Great night of w- watching films. Wonder. Okay, that's an interesting one. Does, didn't land which, for me. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's a good film. It's not quite... Res- I mean, how it's resonated with him, like the themes of bullying and harassment, which are difficult to watch, but it really lends the film something special for Harvey. And um, then, completely contrasting to those serious-natured films, Avengers Endgame. <laughs> I've chatted with Harvey at the cinema when he's been in to watch films, and he is very much like us, that he will... He embraces everything about cinema. He embraces the the somber. He embraces the spectacle. It's all about the enjoyment of film. And I can kind of get why he's included something like Avengers Endgame, the culmination of all those years of Marvel films coming to a beautiful head. So another top five we've got, Andy, is from my other half. And she says her top five for this year is, in no particular order, Everybody's Talking About Jamie, which is a film that you liked, but I wasn't bothered about. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, I've never been that bothered with seeing the musical, but when it came to film, I gave myself a ch- gave it a chance, sat down, watched it, loved it. And then she said Cruella. Is, was that this year or was it last year? I, as, as I've said to you on many an email, they've just sort of drifted into one. <laughs> yeah, it, we'll, we'll, we'll accept it for either, to be honest with you. <laughs> yes. Uh, one Night in Soho, which you know my thoughts of, and I know I'm in a minority, uh, and had to defend myself uh, when I went to see some friends the other night. And uh, um, I was clearly clearly the one who uh the only one in the room who didn't get it a promising <laughs> young woman and something that'll make you happy the french dispatch that yeah yeah great film not my film of the year but a great film of course it is it's wes anderson and this one from scriptwriter keith williams now keith williams uh probably not a name that you'll recognize but you'll recognize his work he started in the music video industry and wrote some of the most well famous music videos of all time which include video killed the radio star oh buggles classic alice cooper man behind the mask phil collins against all odds which was taken from the film uh with jeff bridges and james woods and probably most famously um he created the ghostbusters video yeah who are you gonna call <laughs> that was his i also was the scriptwriter on talos the mummy so um keith's top five films of all time include my favorite christmas film of all time it's a Wonderful Life. Good Citizen job. Kane. I, of, of course, Citizen Kane. No one's mentioned it so far. Jason and the Argonauts. What a holiday oh. special. I think it's one of those films that got me into films. The stop motion effects from Harry Harrison in that were perfection. The oh, skeleton fight is just iconic. Did you do the thing when you were a kid, Andy? You used to get the radio and then the TV times and just look for films like Jason and the Argonauts to make oh, sure they were on. Any of the Sinbad films, uh, Jason and the Argonauts, any of... Bl- Anything that Harry Housen was linked to would get circled in the Radio Times. 2001 A Space Odyssey. Ooh. And interestingly <laughs> enough, Yankee Doodle Dandy, which is a film that I'm not familiar with, which I know I've seen, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Two of those are in my... I, I sketched together a five list and 2001 and It's a Wonderful Life made it into the... Now, interestingly, I believe you've also got one other person's. I will just like to say that in my top five list, there is a particular film that is quite significant to this. Okay. So we have got the top five list of all time from film director Russell McKay. Now, Russell McKay, his film Highlander was our very, very first deep dive. And it's, and it's one of my top five films of all time. I go back to revisit it 
every year at least once. I love it from front to back. Of course, Russell still uh, makes films. Uh, made the much underrated The Shadow, which I loved. Yeah. And uh, is now working on television. He was behind uh, Teen Wolf, if I remember correctly. And Russell's top five is. And you mentioned enjoying the Sinbad film, so wait out for this one, Andy. <laughs> Rear Window, again, Good 2001, shout. A Space Odyssey. Psycho, Clockwork Orange, and Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Well, it has to, if you're going to have any Sinbad film, it has to be Seventh Voyage, of course. Absolutely. And he says his film <laughs> of the year for this year is Dune. So we're oh. in good company there, Andy. I mean, now I know why I love his films so much. He clearly has very good taste in films. <laughs> he's one of us. He's a geek. He's one of us. And hopefully he's listening. And if you are, Russell, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Russell. So, Andy, what, have, what has been your top five of this year as people know and i'll talk about this as little fillers for the bonus episodes coming up i track all my stats on letterboxd every time i watch a film i track it on letterboxd and so it's quite easy for me to put it into a chart so i can see what i've rated everything and what my top films and according to my letterbox tracking i have two five star ratings this year one which is villeneuve's june and the other one which I know it's a three-part series, but I consider it as one documentary feature, and that's The Beatles Get Back. Okay, um, good choice. In, in the next few places, I've got a lot of four-and-a-half-star films, but West Side Story, which I'll talk about later, Ghostbusters, The Harder They Fall, Last Night in Soho, French Dispatch, No Time to Die, and Candyman are within there, as well as The Green Knight. So it's very hard for me at the moment to work out which of the four-and-a-half-star films I want to fully focus on. Oh, and also um, Mitchell's versus the Machines. So over the next couple of weeks, I will narrow down which ones I think are my top five out of those. When I looked back over this year, I thought it was going to be a, a difficult choice to make for, for top five. I just didn't think I'd seen that much. And then suddenly going back through the list, realised that uh, I'd seen some great films. So uh, in no particular order, uh, Promising Young Woman, I just thought it was uh, vibrant, clever, it was uh, provocative. It was a horror film. It was a thriller. Carrie Mulligan as Cassie was just uh, a tour de force. Incredible screen presence in it. I thought it was was absolutely, absolutely stunning piece of, of filmmaking and a, a, a stunning story that took me in directions I just didn't expect, made me feel things that I didn't always feel comfortable feeling. Uh, you mentioned it, Mitchells versus the Machines. Um, like Into the Spider-Verse, which was beautifully animated and, and so clever and doing something new with the form, I thought this was uh, was all those things produced by uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Animated comedy about a dysfunctional family battling a robotic apocalypse. And from the moment it started and I, and I fell into this film, it felt like I was watching a, a, a classic film. Yeah, beautifully done. Look great, and and more importantly, it had me in stitches. There were there were gags, there were gags, and then there were more gags, and and it wasn't just jokes for jokes' uh, sake. It was held together by a really good, touching storyline. There's been a few over the last year or so Groundhog Day styled movies, and and I had to choose one out of this because I thought there were. It was hard to do because it was a, a, it was almost a split decision between a map of tiny things, which you introduced me to and absolutely yeah. adored, and Palm Springs. But Palm Springs won because it did 
something absolutely fresh with a, a genre piece now that that isn't becoming old and tired but it just brought it to life in a way again all the things that, that i've just talked about with mitchell's versus the the machines it, it was it was visually stunning it was touching it was funny it was clever it had great chemistry between between the leads um who neither of them have been better and they are great leads uh, andy schamberg and, and christine Millier. it just it just kept it kept it fresh all the way through uh and i just thought it, i thought it glowed as a film i, I considered putting nomadland in there because um i i, I didn't I, I thought it was a was a was a, an interestingly good film, but emotionally unconnecting. So I didn't. <laughs> Ultimately, mm. I didn't put it in. Yeah. <laughs> um, no time to die would make there because it was just superb. What a, a a way to do something with a franchise that is fresh and exciting again. And this this term fresh is coming up uh, yeah. more than once. I um I thought Craig has has never been better. He's made Bond his own and he's he clearly he's, he's got fingerprints all over where where bond has gone uh and i'm still not going to give away what happens in it because I, I think if you've not seen it now is the chance to to see it shang chai was just on the edge of it but if i'm going to go for five then it has to be dune yeah because I... it is it's beautiful it's it's a it's exactly what cinema should be it doesn't pull its punches in the way that it delivers story by being thinking that its audience is smart and not talking down to them. It looked fantastic. It was clever. It took form, uh, a literary form, and, and made it into something that is purely, purely cinematic. It made me want the sequel from the minute the, the last shot happened and the credits rolled. Um, it, well, well acted, but it, it's even no matter how good the cast is, and they are good, this is Villeneuve's film, and Villeneuve's fingerprints are all over it. That's my top five. Completely agree with uh, Dune on there. It's, it's the pacing. It's the fact that it has great visual designs for all the tech, which is quite low-tech um, and industrial. In a high-tech way. And it lingers on them to let you appreciate this world that he's built. And the second film can't come soon enough and hopefully he'll get to do the third film and wrap up the Paul Atreides story completely. I don't particularly want them to do any further films after that for reasons that I've specified in the past. The books get a bit silly. But Paul Atreides' journey should be told in that grand way that only Villeneuve seems to be able to tap into. Absolutely marvellous film. So that's that's some selections it of films from all time that people love. If you are listening and you've not submitted anything, feel free to keep submitting because we're always interested to see what you suggest. And like we've, we've pointed out, some of these are films that we've meant to get round to watching ourselves and we will put them on for our upcoming deep dives. Over the next few weeks when I do the filler episodes, I will, any, well, any that come in, I will give a shout out for and I'll cover them as little segments of new stuff in amongst the old archive material that I'm going to be compiling together. So thank you very much, everybody, for your submission so far. It's absolutely wonderful to hear your very varied list of films, some which speak towards what we've covered already on the show, but some that are ones that we've wanted to cover, but not actually really picked up on it. Yeah, I could have still got away with mentioning nobody, and I, I can't believe that I've, I've not put that in my list as well, because uh, I had oh, such a gas choice. with that film. Absolutely it was so gas. much fun. But I, if I'm only doing five, you've got to you've got to draw the line somewhere. But yeah, yeah 
I, I didn't put nobody in. I mean, I've watched 660 films this year, so <laughs> narrowing it down to five is it's a struggle. <laughs> so that's our favourite films of the year. Some great choices by you. And as Andy said, keep them coming and we will do them uh, during the Christmas period and uh, do it in, in one of Andy's little bonus episodes. So now it's time for reviews. As ever, Andy has been, well, he's been glued. Dedicated. <laughs> and, and dedicated to watching. Well, I'm going to start with something that we've both seen. Andy, should we talk about Wrath of uh, Man before anything else? And then uh, I can let you run wild. <laughs> yeah, let's start with Wrath of Man. I need to know who killed my son. It's got to be an inside job. Not good enough. As requested, a brand new you. The boss is going undercover. There's an armored truck driver. Get in the truck! Sorry, pal. He's not a cop. If he's not a cop, what is he? It's very important that you take my inquiry seriously. So, loosely based on the 2004 French thriller Cash Truck, Guy Ritchie's Wrath of Man is a return to him teaming up with his old muse, Jason Statham. The stage plays the mysterious man named Patrick Hill, who begins working for Fortico Security. Only just passing his application tests with average scores, the silent newbie keeps to himself and just gets on with the job of shipping money around the city. However, when one of the trucks is ambushed, Hill takes down all the attempted robbers with swift and pinpoint accuracy, leading the rest of the crew wondering who he is and why he's working for the company. We both saw this one, and I found myself very quickly as soon as it started, falling out of interest with it. Familiar territory for uh, Guy Ritchie and not really doing anything new with it. And he's proved that he can do interesting work within uh, uh, the crime genre. He's not yeah. always successful at it, but every now and then he, he'll, he'll push the envelope a little bit. I have an, an on and off relationship with, with Ritchie as, as, as to the quality of his films. I love the Sherlock Holmes films. I liked his, his take on Aladdin, even though apparently it had been heavily uh, re-edited by Disney and, and a little bit of extra footage shot from what we've heard. He always has something of interest, but in this, I, it, it just didn't land for me. There were too many nods to to other films, which are much, much better. When we talked about this prior to recording, you said, this is Guy Ritchie channeling Michael Mann. Yeah. And I've, I've got to agree with it. It doesn't feel like a Guy Ritchie film. He's normally got like zippy stylings and witty dialogue, but that's kind of missing in here. The only thing that is Guy Ritchie-esque in this whole thing is his jumping backwards and forwards in time frame, which is one of his techniques that he uses to fill in gaps when he's got multiple threads all converging on each other. And even that doesn't feel as as skillful as he's used in previous films. It feels somewhat forced, and there's a there's one element of the flashing backwards and forwards in time where we're seeing some actions from different viewpoints. That once you get to the third time round, you're like, you're not telling us mm. any difference. Why have you jumped back? I mean, I enjoyed this a lot more than you did. I still got something from it, and you know, I was captivated throughout it, and mostly because I think that Statham gives quite a good role in here. He's normally again. Statham is normally like a huge presence on screen, but he's quite unassuming for much of this. And I thought that was great to see him not be this like jokey, wisecracking character, but being something a bit different. And when he turns menacing and the action breaks out, and boy, the action is great. It's well-directed and skillfully shot. Statham is what the centre of attention is. The unfortunate thing is the rest of the cast around him, all decent names, are wasted. Yeah, you've got, you've got Josh Harner in there. 
got uh, Holt McCauley was brilliant in Mindhunter. Yeah, I, it just it, for me, it just didn't land. I found myself getting bored very, very quickly. I thought Stath was good. He was grim. He had that kind of quiet assurance, like a like a Bronson, except in knitwear. Um, <laughs> but I've, I've seen Statham do this before, and he again brought nothing to with it. And it, and he can go out and do. I'm, I'm thinking of Hummingbird when he did something really, yeah. really different that 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 uh, that pushed his form, and even to some extent the charisma that he showed in the Transporter series. But it just feels derivative, and it, it feels derivative of, of every other kind of film about a high scone array. The, the biggest problem is that all the all the support cast are stereotypes. And they're all playing stereotypes for what that actor is normally known for. And yeah. so any of the twists in the story are signposted as soon as someone walks on screen. Yes. There's nothing to surprise you. It's generic. It's it's passable entertainment, but there's nothing there to make it kind of stand out. And you can kind of see why streaming is a good home for this kind of film. Especially when it gets tangled in the the time hopping sequences. That yeah, I I I got bored, and and that's probably the worst thing to say about this kind. And I love a good heist movie, but yes. I found that I got bored with it because I've seen something. Uh, I've I've seen Richie do better, and I've seen this kind of film done so much better. Right, what else have you yeah. got for us, Andy? I know you're going to talk about a film that I am desperate to see. And just circumstances kept me away. So that'll be Clifford the Big Red Dog. I'll move on and go back to West Side Story. <laughs> so West Side Story. It's happening tonight. I want the West Side lockdown. I never seen you before. You keep away from my sister. We need you if we're going to war. Tony, I am scared. There won't be any fight. Do you want to start World War III? Stand with us. West Side Story. So this is the second feature-length adaptation of the 1957 stage musical that's been inspired by Romeo and Juliet. Spielberg's version is a lovingly represented adaptation which retains the energy and emotion of the music but gives it a more real-world setting than the previous film managed. In addition, some character tweaks and inclusions make it a more faithful adaptation of the original stage version to give the film something new to represent and thus avoid the unnecessary reshoot comparison that it could have drawn. Set in the San Juan Hill neighbourhood on the Upper West Side, where rivalry for control of the neighbourhood sees two gangs, the White American Jets and the Puerto Rican Sharks, escalate as the very neighbourhood around them is being stripped down and rebuilt. In this chaos, an old leader of the Jets, Tony, falls for the sister of the lead of the Sharks, and the feud escalates as a result. It's a very old-school showmanship approach to the music that makes this feel very much a musical of the mid-20th century, but with added modern sensibilities. The alterations to the tale and the characters work to great effect. Rita Marino appears as Valentina, who's a mentor to the youths of the area and has a lot more to say and do than Doc did in the 1961 adaptation. Iris Minas, as anybody's, a tomboy in the previous version, is here a transgendered approach, which adds somewhat to the plight of that character to be accepted as one of the gang. Even the location changes for key songs work perfectly. The police precinct set G Officer Krupke is an absolute delight, using the setting and the props to full joyous impact. The key cast are all strong. Ansel Elgort feels a little flat at moments and is maybe the weakest of the core faces. 
But thankfully, Rachel Zegler is stunningly delightful as Maria, while David Alvarez as Bernardo and Mike Faist as Riff truly sell their parts as the leaders of the opposing gangs. Running at an impressive 156 minutes, what is most impressive is that not one moment of that runtime is wasted. From the toe-tapping introduction through to the emotional ending, I was captivated by the grand design and presentation of the whole tale. A tale I already knew from front to back, but felt like I was experiencing it again for the very first time. Spielberg's West Side Story is, at the very least, equal to the previous adaptation. I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing this. I've been looking forward to it since I saw the first trailers, and just the circumstances have kept me away from, from seeing it. I love that Spielberg has... I know he's always wanted to do a musical, but it's the fact that he does something that the original film wanted to do, but but didn't, uh, and and yeah. shoot shoot on location. So I'm I'm utter, utter eager to see this, and we'll see this post haste. By the time the, the the program's gone out, I will have seen this. And your next choice. So let's move on to Clifford the Big Red Dog. Do we have to? Well, I think we should because I I sat through it, so I'm gonna I'm gonna advise people whether they should. How big is he going to get? Depends on how much you love him. This Christmas. Ah! Something happening. You think? Why don't we get you on the scale here? Oh! I'm just going to write heavy. Join the adventure. Clifford the Big Red Dog, only in cinemas December 10th. Based on the children's book series by Norman Bridwell, it's safe to say that I'm not the target audience for Clifford. The film stars Jack Whitehall as Casey, the clumsy but good-natured uncle to a young girl named Emily, played by Darby Camp, who's asked to watch over the youngster for a few days whilst her mother goes on a business trip. When Emily unwittingly adopts a small red puppy, which then grows to giant size overnight, Casey struggles to keep the puppy secret and soon finds the trouble escalate as a biotech company gets involved and tries to steal the dog for tests. Now, you know how we all have those films that we loved when we were a kid, but as we grew up and revisited them, we saw them for the utter trash that they actually were and feel upset and sometimes angry that our childhood nostalgia lied to us and we actually wasted too many hours on junk. Well, suffice to say, a whole new generation can look forward to feeling those very emotions as they get older. I'm sure that under 10s will find a lot of enjoyment in the hijinks of this film, but I pity the poor parents or guardians who have to suffer this experience like I did. There is nothing, and I mean nothing, in here which an adult would find charming or fun. Whitehall is not someone I find enjoyment with at the best of times, but in this, he's at a career low, adopting a dubious accent that I think is supposed to be American, which there's really no need for, given his character's sister speaks with a very English accent. He mugs and gurns a lot, and that's about it. Tony Hale pops up to pay his rent with the role of the biolab owner, a part that made me hopeful for some element of fun, much as we saw in last year's Flora and Ulysses. But sadly, that was not to be, as he's completely wasted in the part. John Cleese is there to just, well, be John Cleese. But worst of all is the tragically inconsistent special effects on offer. The puppy never looks to fit in any of the scenes, and the size seems to fluctuate from time to time for no good reason. Once you get to characters riding on the back of the dog, I say characters, I mean really bad rubberized doll-like CGI figures that wouldn't be out of place in a PlayStation 1 cutscene. Well, it just looks cheap and underproduced. The level of effects work seen in the trailers is as good as it gets. They might as well have just opted for full animation and made it match the environment around it. Clifford is a pure kids film that speaks down to the audience. The best kids' films don't talk down to the kids, but tell a good story in a family-friendly way. This 
is not one of those films. It's it's interesting. What I I, I mean, you've you've instantly said in your review, Andy, that this we're not the target market for this one, and it is aimed purely at five year olds, and and we'll we'll see it in different eyes than we we will bring to it. Of course, I, I just couldn't get over the look of the film from you said about the effects work looking so poor, but I just would think that would even a five year old buy it. You know, I know the story logic of, of a big red dog and they're trying to hide it is, is, is would, would be an issue for me. But I just I, I couldn't understand where it was aimed. And I think that's the problem on something that would have worked quite nicely as a, as a 10 minute animated little serial on TV to doing a feature that everything, no pun intended, they have to balloon in size to make it work on a big screen. But as I said, we're not the target market. And then finally. Resident Evil, welcome to Raccoon City. You are so much braver than I am. Not because I'd be scared, no. Uh, and not because I, when I saw the trailer, I was disappointed by the trailer, even though it did resemble the game. And I and I recently went back and played the remastered version of Resident Evil 2. It was just looked tired and cheap. Are you going to tell me I'm wrong? Uh, yeah. Hello? What's your name? They'll happen here. The Umbrella Corporation's been experimenting on this town since we were kids. People are getting sick. We have to stop Umbrella. Show me your hands! What the f- The world needs to know what's really going on. City. The Resident Evil film series have had a bit of a bad reputation. Even though, personally, I've got a fondness for the Paul W.S. Anderson films, I knew, deep in my mind, that they're trash, and they bore very little resemblance to the games that they spawned from. Audiences diminished over the series, meaning that this new reboot of the franchise, an attempt to get it back to the roots of the games, had a serious uphill struggle in order to be embraced. Set in the outbreak of the events at Raccoon City, a small town linked to the Umbrella Research Facility, the film is a meld of the core stories from the first two Resident Evil games. Claire Redfield returns to her hometown of Raccoon City, finding it a shell of the former town it used to be. Umbrella are moving out, and the town is pretty close to being a ghost town as a result. Attempts to reconcile with her brother Chris don't go well, however, but as the night progresses, strange events take place that set the pair off on trying to find each other again. Tonally, this is more low-key, drawing on the horror atmosphere of the game series. And whilst there is action, it isn't acrobatic stunts of the previous series of films. Echoes of classic zombie films and grotesque creature features resonate throughout. After all, those were the inspirations for the video game series. The characters are templates, ones we've seen portrayed in many other films of the ilk, but that's all we needed to hang the tale on. In adapting the first two games, albeit with a few small nips and tucks to the script, the film emulates some iconic moments from the source, and the visual representations of locations are authentic enough to keep fans happy as they look to spot some fun Easter eggs. But it doesn't let loyalty to the game get in the way of making the film accessible to a general audience. Enough is told to draw audiences in, and the horror elements are handled deftly. This is a solid new outing for the franchise, 
which due to a relatively low budget should hopefully gain enough of an audience to allow for further ventures into the world, something which a mid-credit scene seems keen to explore. I mean, I think that the main problem with a lot of game adaptations, and there's a huge list of what problems there are with, with game-inspired movies, I just looked at the trailer and I just thought, I'm just not in. I can see that they've even picked some of the camera angles from, from Resident Evil 2. I don't know what threw me out of it. I'd, I'd watch it on home release. There's no way I'd, I'd be interested in going to see this on a, on a big screen. So that's the reviews. Andy, what else is out? What can we expect over the next week? Oh, well, there's a, there's a small film about some man who was bitten by a radioactive spider and can't find his way home or something. Oh, that'd be the Man yes. Spider series. The man which I'm sure would have been a Roger Corman series if, if it had been allowed. And as we're not going to be on proper air for the next few weeks, let's just quickly look at what to look for in the cinemas in the weeks ahead. We've got Matrix Resurrections on the 22nd. We've got The King's Man on 26th of December. We've got Titane on the 26th of December. And then getting into the new year, Licorice Pizza, P.T. Anderson's latest film, which is getting a lot of plaudits, yeah. lands on the 1st of January. On streaming... Now TV over the next few weeks as things such as In the Heights on the 17th, Last Train to Christmas, Fat Man, Peter Rabbit 2 and Suicide Squad. Things to look for over the next few weeks. Netflix has The Hand of God, Grumpy Christmas, Don't Look Up, A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood, The Lost Daughter and of course Cobra Kai Season 4. There's something for everybody there, isn't there? Literally there something is. for There's everyone. There's a good range. And over on Amazon, being the Ricardos is the one thing that's been on our agenda. So we're going to be keeping a look out for that. And then on Disney, you get to see Encanto land on the service just in time for Christmas. And of course, Book of Boba Fett, as we've already mentioned, just after Christmas. And of course, we're both looking forward to Don't Look Up. Of course. As soon as I've seen, I will do a one minute review over on the old TikTok. We have been watching over the last couple of weeks because we do this whenever there's a new MCU uh, TV series for Disney Plus. We are now into the fourth episode of Hawkeye. The person that wore this suit made a whole lot of enemies. What's going on? Should we be worried? Hawkeye and I are working on a case. Working on a case together? Think. You know what, Andy, with Hawkeye and with any series in particular, there reaches a point in in a series where you either go, I am totally in with this or mm, I don't know if I'll stick around. I just might be doing it because I have to. This is the episode for me where I fell in love with the series <laughs> and it is now my favorite Marvel series. And, and I don't even know what it is that, that made me fall in love with it in, in a way. I, it didn't have the big action sequences compared to the car chase in, in episode three. What it did have is just a ton of heart, an absolutely ton of heart. The fact that we are seeing Clint Barton as a man who gets hurt, the scene where he has to use bags of frozen peas to, to just to go over the aching muscles, the relationship between the two Hawkeyes, the growing subplots, what's going on. But this was the one, this is the one that, that turned it from being a good series and one that I was thoroughly enjoying it into a series that I'm, I'm absolutely loving. Yeah, it was a huge character-driven episode. And me, the wife and the daughter 
sat and watched it and were chuckling at the dialogue exchanges, the banter between the two. I loved the whole, she's so excited to be working with her hero, but he's very nonchalant. So like, yeah, she's not that good. Yeah, we're not really <laughs> friends. Yeah, I'm kind of forced here, kind of reaction. But those little touches there and little throwaway things for fans of the comic book to pick up on, such as the whole conversation about a boomerang trick arrow, which was lifted from Matt Fraction's run on the comic, but it was done in the reverse way round, where it's her saying it's such a great idea and him going, eh, it's not though, is it? <laughs> um I picked up on that straight away and I just started chuckling as soon as that dialogue started. And like the wife and daughter looked at me as if like, what's so funny? It was like, because <laughs> I know what this conversation is. <laughs> um, I, I'm hoping there's going to be a payoff on the boomerang arrow further down the line, the same way that there was in the comic, because beautiful. Yeah, same as you. This is the episode that I have fallen completely and utterly in love with the show. I just think it's got every beat has been right. Uh, the characters are so grounded while still being slightly fantastical and it's playing with all the elements in such a fun and joyous way to make it feel fresh. I mean, Falcon and Winter Soldier, I had the criticism that it was just another Marvel thing, whereas this doesn't feel necessarily like a Marvel thing. Yeah, I totally it, agree with that. It, totally. It feels, as we've said multiple times, like a buddy cop kind of storytelling it feels like lethal weapon it feels that kind of energy and i am loving it we've only got a couple more episodes to go i am going to miss this show once it's not on the air apparently when it wants to do another season so I'm, I'm hoping it does so it's not been the highest rated so far out of all the uh, uh marvel series and i think that's because it's 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 slightly it's slightly mature and i think it's it's character driven yeah. as opposed to action driven uh, but i'm having such a good time of it it brings out all the best elements of of, of a Shane Black inspired story. I, I, th I think it's great. And that, folks, is about it for our 100th episode. Thank you so much for being part of this journey. Uh, another more 100 to come uh, and then on. Um, but it's, it's an absolute pleasure every week to do this. Uh, we enjoy it. I hope that that comes through. And I'm pretty sure it does. And um, uh, it, it is um, uh, absolutely absolutely great that we've made it this far and uh, <laughs> uh, can't wait for the next next hundred yeah i mean you know we we always round off with neat things but before we get on to our actual neat things you guys out there who listen and make this all worthwhile are a neat thing you're the neat thing of every episode we don't mention you enough but you are if you weren't out there listening we'd probably still make the show anyway but it's great that you are listening and it's great whenever we get feedback from people saying like oh listen to your show last week oh love your chat on this um, Stevie Dan 1969 loved our discussion of Boondock Saints, even though we didn't quite embrace it the same way that he did. Um, and that's what it's all about. You listeners, you're a neat thing before we get on to our actual neat things for the week. As ever, we end each show with a neat thing. And we've been doing this since episode one. Things that we've seen, done, enjoyed, ate, watched, played, you name it, our neat things. Andy, in every episode, has gone first. So I'm going to break with tradition and I'm going to go first and throw Andy <laughs> off completely. Uh, my neat thing is, is is a sad one. And that's why I wanted to go first because I didn't want to linger on, on a sad note. My neat thing uh, is when I was very little, the two things that have always impassioned me are, are movies and TV uh, and music. And my introduction to music was with a TV show called The Monkeys. It made me want to be in a band because I thought that's what being in a band was about. Uh, with your buddies having 
ridiculous adventures which were slightly surreal you live in a big house together and they your life would be quirky um disappointingly so it's more about being sat in the back of a van as you're traveling to the next venue and that's the same on any level folks you're always sat traveling uh whether you are beginners mid-level or superstars uh and the monkeys subsequently because of that became one of my all-time favorite bands and you know what you know the hits but there were some pretty good songs and they realized that they were yeah and could be a proper band and wrote and produced their own songs and they wrote some fantastic songs and things that aren't on a greatest hits album they they are some some brilliant and memorable pop songs some of the best of you'll ever hear of course behind the monkeys was michael nesmith who passed away uh, this week. And it was a real shock to hear that. It was a shock when Davy Jones passed. It was a shock when Peter Tork passed. But for some reason, Michael Nesmith's uh, passing was hard because he was my my favourite monkey. He was the cool one, the intellectual, the musician one. Um, and he's the one I had my biggest affinity with. So it, it really is a, a sad passing to say goodbye to Mike Nesmith. And, and just to know that, you know what, there's only one of the guys left, Mickey Dolan's. And it is now completely over. But thank you. My neat thing is is the Monkeys and everything that they brought to music, brought to entertainment and brought to my life. That's a, a very good, neat thing. Same, same as with you. I grew up watching reruns of the Monkeys and absolutely loved them. Like you say, the, the whole idea of a band living in the same house made it so much fun, so much energy. And I've always been, had a huge, yeah. huge love for their music and the film Head as well which yeah, we've spoken right. about previously on the show. Uh, on Room for a deep dive in that one. Definitely. Uh, my neat thing. Now, after watching the Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City, it resonated so well with the games that I came straight home and downloaded the res- first few Resident Evil games onto my PlayStation 5. The, the remastered versions that I'd not, I've had bought for a while, but I've not got around to playing them. But now I've thrown myself into the Resident Evil series to start playing through them again. And I'm currently on the first one. And I mean, bearing in mind, I, I completed this game multiple times back in the PS1 days. I've completely forgotten everything about the game. So it's a whole <laughs> new, fresh experience in a remastered version. And I'm loving it. I am abs- I'm lost in this mansion. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm wandering backwards and forwards and taking things out of chests and everything. But I'm loving the whole thing again. And the Resident Evil series... I've got, I've had the last few games, but I've not got around to playing them at all. I bought them on release and still not got around to playing them. But I'm going to work my way through over this next few weeks, every one of the games and immerse myself in that dark world of Raccoon City and Umbrella and the effects on the world as the T-virus and G-virus and every other virus go out of control. Seems a bit too topical in this day and age, but... That's how good the film was, that it made me remember loving the games. And now my neat thing is my love of the games all over again in the remastered versions, which are currently available in various sales for whatever platform you've got and well worth picking up. If you've not played the remastered versions of Resident Evil 1, 2 and 3, pick them up. They're dirt cheap at the moment. Um, I always remember the main thing with Resident Evil is coming to a door. You (laughs) never knew what was going to be behind that door i mean i I agree with you i think the the later games went off the boil but but definitely one and two were iconic iconic games the the doors as well to to use like a door opening animation as a way to disguise the fact that it's loading the next room up in the background was so innovative at the time yeah 
it was something unique because usually it'd just be a black screen and you have to wait like half a minute to a, like a minute and a half for something to load. But just having that animation made it feel a bit more immersive. And that's it, folks. Uh, and we will see you again after Christmas. Have a wonderful Christmas. We'll be back to give you our review of the new Spider-Man movie. But Andy, I hope you have a, a wonderful holiday. Yeah, you too, man. Yeah, we're both going to be pulled left, right and centre and stretched for time, which is why we're having to take this break. But like you said, we will, once we've both seen Spider-Man, record something to go out in one of the bonus episodes. As ever, it's a pleasure to work with you, sir. Take care and a Merry Christmas. And a Happy New Year to you. And Andy, none of this makes sense, but I'm going back out there because it's my job. (laughs) 